0: Well, today I'm going to add the sixth and final message to a sermon series that I have been ministering over the past several weeks, a series that I called by one sacrifice, our perfection in Christ. Today I'm going to minister for a little while through a message that I'm calling The Perfect Encounter. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. Our salvation and the gifts from God are not by chance. They were not randomly passed out. They were not slung out like some sort of confetti. And wherever they landed, that's what you got. No, the Father was very intentional as he began to deposit gifts on the inside of us. And that greatest gift is his son, Jesus Christ. I don't think I'll get any argument about that. Jesus is the greatest gift the Father has ever given us. And it's through Jesus we understand our Father. We come to know his love for us. We come to know this great mercy, this great grace from the Father. So none of this happened by chance. This is what I want you to see through the message today, that God is the God of orchestration. I want you to remember that phrase, that God is the God of orchestration. He does not manipulate us. He does not control us. What he does is he gently leads us into green pastures and he leads us into rivers of living water. Yes, not puddles, rivers. They speak of torrents. They speak of abundance. His mercy, his love for us, his grace for us is abundant. It's like a torrential rain. There's power in it. I want you to see those things through the message today. Throughout the Bible, we read about remarkable men and women of God, heroes of faith, heroes of valor, heroes of purity. One of those amazing people is the one who was familiar with green pastures and living water. His name is David, a lowly shepherd boy, But inside of that lowly shepherd boy, God was sculpting him. He was sculpting him into a king. He gave him the gift to become a king. And he's sculpting that into his heart when David is totally unaware. When David is just managing sheep. When David is just leading sheep. When David is sitting down underneath a tree and he's meditating and he's singing songs. He loved to sing. And he's meditating and he's writing God was sculpting on the inside of David something powerful, something beautiful. I'm going to give you a fun fact. This is the truth. Did you know that David's name is mentioned more times throughout the Bible than Jesus' name? So there's something very special about this character. Not that he's more special than Jesus, but we can see there's something very special about David. And every time I read the Psalms, I come to the same conclusion. David is writing from the depths of his soul. There's nothing superficial here. He's writing from the depths of his soul. David is putting his feelings and his emotions into words. And I want you to know something, that's not easy for a man to do. He's reaching down and he's thinking, man, this is what I'm feeling today. How do I find the words to express this? And I suppose while the sheep were sleeping, while the sheep were just chewing their cud, whatever they're doing, David is meditating. He's meditating on, Father, God, how do I explain my emotions? How do I explain what I'm feeling right now? How do I explain into words? It's not an easy thing for us to do. You know that, don't you? Women, you have an easier time at this than guys do. But for guys, it's not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's not easy for a lot of people. David had no idea that his writings would be indelibly inscribed in the best-selling book of all time. I'm talking about the Bible. He would have had no way of knowing that. God didn't say, David, whatever you write today, I'm going to put it in a book that people are going to read for generations and generations. No, David is just writing songs and psalms and hymns, and he's, singing these things to the lord that's more than just words it's a song that he's crafted and we still sing many of those songs today like fire shut up in his bones it was invigorating i believe and i believe it was therapeutic for david to express his affection and his love for god and to sing about the goodness of god He constantly was singing about the goodness of God. You see, friends, David understood minimum wage. Therefore, David could be trusted with unfathomable riches. The reason most people go broke after they've won the lottery is because they didn't know how to manage minimum wage. And so they don't know how to manage untold riches. David learned this in the pasture when he didn't have two coins to rub together, but he had sheep to take care of, and he had to know how many sheep he had, just like Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one walks away, he loses one. Didn't he say, won't he leave the 99 and go look for that sheep? And he will look until he finds it. How many times do you think that might have happened for David? That might have happened all the time. He had to be a little bit in the accounting business. Okay, we got 317 sheep. I've counted them twice. I keep coming up with 316. Has one walked away? He knew how to manage things. And can you imagine? His flock consisted of probably a multitude of sheep. And he had to be aware of what all of them were doing at the same time. He had to be aware. Did they have ticks and fleas and mites? and diseases, and he was constantly caring for these. It was more than, hey, boys, hey, girls, just follow me. We're going somewhere today. No, he had to manage them when nobody had their eye on him. But daddy did. And papa said, I like your heart, son. I like your heart. I can trust you as a king someday. Because as a king, you're going to be dealing with unimaginable riches. David understood minimum wage. So David could appreciate extravagant wealth. David understood what it felt like to be overlooked. You see, when Samuel was called to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons, David was out in the pasture. And Samuel had Jesse's sons one by one march in front of him. He's looking for the next king. And these sons of Jesse's were all, no doubt, tall, dark, handsome. They fit all the criteria, warriors, swords. But Samuel watched each one of those guys pass before him. And guess what Samuel was doing? He wasn't judging a book by its cover. He was listening for the Spirit. This is what we should do, right? Quit judging stuff by our eyes. Our eyes will lie to us. Our ears will lie to us at times. I'm not saying they always do, but he wasn't waiting to see how well you walk. Samuel wasn't looking for any of that. He was waiting on the Spirit. What does the Spirit say? And one by one, They'd walk before him and Samuel would go, he's not the one. Next, (laughs) you're not the one either. Next, you're not the one. And I believe Samuel was a little puzzled when he got done. Went, wait a minute now, seven sons just passed before me. These are all your sons, Jesse. And the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. Samuel said, you got any more kids? (laughs) And Jesse said, well, I've got the one. And let's just say it the way I said it a second ago. We just generally overlook him, though, okay? Because all he is is a shepherd boy. He doesn't even carry a sword. He's got a rag and a rock, and that's about it, you know? He's got a slingshot, but he doesn't carry a real weapon. That's just a little kid's toy. You wouldn't be interested in him, he said. (laughs) Not only am I interested, he said, but i'm so interested i'm on the edge of my seat because i want to know what god's up to here in fact i'm not even going to sit down until you go find him and bring him back and i don't know what that looked like i mean the bible says that david was ruddy kind of red-headed you know we say the red-headed stepchild that's about what david looked like probably a little small guy you know but samuel took one look at him listened to the spirit and he said you're the one and he anointed him as king. David knew what it felt like to be overlooked. Therefore, you know what? Because he didn't get jealous, because he wasn't in competition with his brothers, God said, I love that heart, son. I love that heart. I'm going to exalt you to king. It's going to take some time. I got to move some things out of the way but I'm going to exalt you to King David. Do you see now why his name is mentioned so many times in the Bible? The guy's got a pretty good character. He's got a pretty good heart. He's not perfect, but he's a pretty good guy. David understood failure. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, failure stared him in the eye like a cannon. He said, man failed I didn't want to do that flesh we've all got flesh flesh got in the way he understood failure when he sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite to the front line to fight he knew he was signing a death certificate that day and when it was all said and done and Uriah was out of the way he thought failure I failed again you ever feel that way Oh, man, Lord, again. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. The gospel of grace will get that condemnation off of you when you fail. Don't think you're going to walk through this life and never fail again. You're going to fail. But I'm telling you, you don't have to dwell in it like a pig. Condemnation does not have to be your portion. You listen to the king of kings when he says you are completely exonerated in my eyes. You are completely justified. David understood failure, but David understood success. When he went up against a nine plus foot tall giant, slinging his little sling, and bang, right between the eyes. The only spot of flesh that was open on that big old giant. Right there in the middle of the eyes. And David was so good, so skilled at that thing. Boom! Don't think that the father wasn't doing some sort of orchestrating, right? Right? I believe maybe the rock was a little bit to the right and would have dinged off his hat. But the father was orchestrating in this situation too. You've got to see this. This is not just what we do. This is the father empowering us and helping us to do things. He's a great orchestrator. David understood success. David understood the successes as a king, as he would make different decisions for the nation of Israel. He made decisions all the time. He saw successes all the time. David understood failure, but David understood success. David understood heartache. Come on, we've all dealt with heartache. You think it was an easy day for David when he learned that his best friend Jonathan fell on his sword? That was a rough day. He knew heartache. David knew heartache when his firstborn son died. The same heartache that God felt when his firstborn son died. David knew heartache. David knew heartache when one of his own sons raped one of his own daughters. That's heartache. David knew heartache when one of his sons killed one of his other sons. David knew heartache. But David also knew celebration. Friends, there's going to be some ups and downs in this world that we walk through. There's going to be some twists and turns, some topsies, some turvies, whatever you call it. There's going to be some of that in this life. But you stay faithful because God is faithful. David knew heartache. David knew what it was like to celebrate as he would win wars against kings and capture the kings and bring peace to the nation. David knew what it was like to celebrate. David knew war and David knew peace. And David knew sometimes it takes war to bring peace. David knew them both. David knew betrayal when his son Absalom came to take over, overthrow his kingdom, overthrow David's kingdom. David knew betrayal like, son! He knew betrayal of certain men that would betray him, but David knew loyalty too. He knew there was merry men that would stick with him through anything. He knew there were people, his leadership, that would stick with him through anything. He knew betrayal, but he knew loyalty like no other man as well. Friends, we can circle this thing back. David was fit for the palace because David first got fit in the pasture. Do you see that? So don't always think it's a bad thing that you're going through stuff in this world. I'm telling you, there's things that are happening in the midst of your stuff, the stuff that you're walking through, that God is shaping your heart. He's shaping your destiny. He's working on you. He's sculpting you on the inside of you because you will face greater giants down the road somewhere. Most importantly, David understood the heart of God. That's what David understood. Somewhere along his journey, David had to have experienced a perfect encounter with God. You see, David's relationship with God, as I said before, was more than just superficial. David knew God's goodness, and God knew David's heart. He said, man, you're the apple of my eye. I know your heart, son. David described God's goodness like this. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 8. Look at those words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see that? That came from David sitting down one day just riding while the sheep were sleeping. And he looked across and he saw the sheep all just, all satisfied. Probably a beautiful day with a breeze in his hair. He said, oh man, I can almost taste this stuff. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusteth in him. Did he say that? Yes, he said that. Friends, I tell you what, you would change your world if you'd arise every day and say those words, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is this man. Why? Because I trust in him. Have you ever noticed that babies don't use their eyes they don't use their ears they don't use their little noses they don't even use their little sense of touch as the primary means of determining whether or not they like something you know what a baby does puts it in his mouth gotta taste it doesn't he you know that come on all of you guys been mamas you know that don't you A baby's got to put stuff in his mouth. You give a baby a pacifier, goes in the mouth. You give a baby a lemon wedge, goes in the mouth. I'm telling you, one he may suck on for hours, the other one he spits immediately out. They know what they like. They taste everything. Babies want to taste everything to see if it's good. You see, as adults, we use our eyes. We use our ears. And we use our little noses. And we use our sense of touch to see if things are good sometimes. But I'm telling you, those senses can be fooled at times. You can look at something one moment and see it one way, come back a little bit later and see it totally different. I do that with the Word all the time. You can hear somebody say something one moment and then go, what did you say? And it's totally different the next. I love the classic and between Valerie and I one day I called her up one day we were talking at the end of that conversation I said to her I said have a god-shaped day I don't know if I've ever said that to anybody you never know what's going to come out of my mouth I said have a god-shaped day she had never heard that before she said what did you say I said have a god-shaped day she said what I said have a god-shaped day what part of this don't you get oh she said I thought you were saying have a scotch tape day <laughs> do you see that the, the, the more times I said it it brought clarification So our eyes and our ears and our nose and our sense of touch can fool us at times. I'm going to tell you something. Your taste buds will tell you if you like something or you don't. It may not be able to name every ingredient in there. Maybe if you're a fine cook, you could say, yeah, it's got this and this and this. But your taste buds will at least tell you whether you like it or not. Treva, I guarantee you invite me over to your house and you cook the finest casserole. I don't know. You pick a casserole from any country. I'll sit down at lunchtime and have that. If I don't like it at noon, I won't like it at supper. I guarantee that. Okay, my taste buds won't change by the evening, okay? If I didn't like it at one meal, I guarantee I won't like it another. Yogurt's that way for me. I can't stand yogurt. If I walk into a room, and somebody's been eating yogurt, it just about gags me. I always say, I must have got into sour milk when I was a kid. I don't know what happened. Whoa, what is this? And I guarantee if that was the only, the only food left on earth, I would be like Fred from Sanford and Son, and I would say, I'm coming to join you today, because <laughs> I just could not eat that stuff. I really couldn't. I honestly couldn't. But do you see what David's getting at when he's saying, taste and see. He was saying, why don't you put it in a receptor on you that really knows you well, that doesn't lie to you, doesn't lie to you. It always tells you basically the truth. The goodness of the Lord cannot be merely explained. The goodness of the Lord must be experienced. Understand that. Get that in your heart this morning. Quit looking just for facts. Look for truth. Truth is greater than facts. The goodness of the Lord cannot just be explained. You've got to experience the goodness of the Lord. His goodness must be experienced. His goodness must be tasted and that's what david was getting at i believe when he wrote the words oh taste and see that the lord is good blessed is the man who trusteth in him what was he saying he was saying man he pacifies he satisfies my soul in the deepest section of me do you see that in that simple little scripture our righteousness in christ listen to me carefully is the perfect encounter There is no comparison. We sang it in worship this morning. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. There is no encounter like Jesus. There is no substitute for grace. God is good and we receive his goodness, not as a reward. That's important. We don't receive his gift as a reward. We received his gift. That's just that, a gift. We could not earn his goodness in a million years, friends. Trying to earn his goodness is silly as rubbing a rabbit's foot for luck. It's just dumb, man. It does nothing. That foot wasn't lucky for the rabbit and won't be lucky for you, right? Many believers allow the perfect encounter with grace, listen to me carefully, to be exchanged, hijacked, if you will, with the old covenant law. When we allow our relationship with the Father, to be governed by rules and laws it alters the flavor of the lord i'm not saying on his end he changes but i'm saying on your end it changes when we allow laws and rules and old covenant to hijack our mind hijack our worship whatever it may be it changes the flavor of the lord it's a lemon wedge in a baby's mouth friends it's a pasture with burned up grass it's a brook that is dried up. It leaves people with a sour taste and they spit it out. But when we taste of the goodness of the Lord and when we taste of the graces of the Lord and when we taste of the mercies of the Lord and when we taste of the love of the Lord, it is in that moment that we are given eyes to see that there is none like you. Jesus is our perfect encounter. Remember, taste and then see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Once the perfect encounter of His loving grace comes into contact with a man's taste buds, that man will be changed forever. He cannot unsee what he has seen. I know that for a fact. You cannot unsee what you've seen. That man will no longer have to walk by sight. He will walk by faith faith in Jesus, and faith in the finished work of the cross. Therefore, when that scripture exhorts us to taste and see that the Lord is good, it is essentially saying, come to him like a newborn baby. Not childish, but childlike. Come to him like a child, totally and completely dependent upon his care for you. See, we got this wrong somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line, we thought, we are the Holy Spirit's helper. No, that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that he is our helper. He's our helper. A baby is totally dependent, relies upon someone to take care of him or her. We are not to just trust in our natural eyes trust in our natural ears and our nose and our sense of touch. We're not even to really trust in our sense of taste. Look what it says. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. What part of that is saying that you trust in you? You are to trust in him. We abandon all of our ability to make us better, to make things work out. Let's go on this joy ride together, papa. Yes, I get it. But we're trusting in him along this journey. In modern day vernacular, we might translate the words perfect encounter into right place, right time. You've heard that before. Maybe you've said that, "Well, I was in the right place at the right time today, you know, found a good sale, found a good whatever, you know, right place, right time." The only problem with that is we give ourselves too much credit sometimes. We give ourselves all the credit at times, and that would be fine if there was no such thing. If we just totally overlook or ignore the reality that God is the God of orchestration, then that would be fine. You see, friends, listen to me carefully. I was more than just in the right place at the right time when I met Valerie. I'm not going to leave that just solely up to luck or chance our meeting of each other was not a coincidence it was not even fate. it began months earlier when the holy spirit helped me to make decisions that seemed unreasonable at the time they seemed unreasonable in the natural the sweet holy spirit you know what he did he actually convinced me to leave a very lucrative career as a sales manager to accept a job that paid two and a half times less than what I was making, and I had to drive four times as far to get there. Now, in the natural, that doesn't make sense, does it? None of that makes sense. But I'm listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, kind of like David, you know? Kind of like Samuel, you know? Listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he would come and speak to me. Friends, we don't have to know the end From the beginning, and I think sometimes that is a great inhibitor. We want to know all the details up front. If you know all the details up front, it requires no faith. Faith is this journey. It's this walking this thing out thing. Faith is a journey. We don't have to know the end from the beginning. We must never just seek the convenient path. And I think sometimes that's what gets in our way. We get spooked, we get a little scared because the path that we feel like we're called to doesn't seem convenient. feels like it has a few thorns on it. And so we think, well, that can't be God because God would make the way totally easy. No, that's not always the case, friends. We just have to know his voice. The spirit is always wooing and calling us to come. Listen to me to living waters he wants to refresh us remember those words living waters he's calling us to come and be refreshed in living waters look at isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1 i like this scripture it says come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost what's the first thing he says there He says, come all you who are thirsty. Friends, I'm telling you, there's a lot of thirsty people in this world. There's a lot of thirsty believers in this world. And he's saying, listen, are you thirsty? I've got a remedy. It's so simple. Come to the waters. There's nothing that will slake your thirst like water. Come to the water. And he said, leave your billfold at home. Leave your pocketbook at home. It's all free here. Oh, what a picture of God's grace that snapshotted right into this verse. You don't need to bring anything. It's all an act of my grace. But he's saying, are you thirsty? Come to the waters. These are living waters, not stagnant waters. Little did I know, but I would take a job at the same company that Valerie took a job at one week before I got there. Friends, our story is so much more than boy meets girl. Our story is so much more than go-to meeting. It's an encounter. Our story was about an encounter. We encountered one another. Yes, as prayer partners at first, friends at first. And so I had to ask myself the question yesterday, what was daddy doing? Come on, let's ask that question. What was the father doing? What was he doing in all this? He was divinely orchestrating, orchestrating the perfect encounter to meet my darling Valerie. He was orchestrating all that. I couldn't have done that in a million years. I'm telling you, without Valerie, my life would have been in shambles, friends. And I guarantee I wouldn't be pastoring this church. I might not even be pastoring at all. Who knows? Valerie stands alongside me. She's a trophy of a wife. She's good at what she does. She's a helper. When God said, I'm going to give you a helper, Adam, I get it now. We need helpers. Not just to help us with all the mundane things around the house like doing dishes, but I mean helpers in life that can speak into your life and talk to you, impart wisdom into you, keep you from going off the cliff and derailing at times. Right, guys? That's what the Father was doing. I was more than just in the right place at the right time when I set aside a full-time ministry so that I could become a full-time daddy. You guys have all heard my story on that, but for 10 years, I was like David in the pasture, writing memories on the hearts of my children, memories that will be passed down throughout the generations. Let me ask you a question again. What was the father doing? What was he doing? He was orchestrating orchestrating the perfect encounter between father and sons oh i'm so happy i listened to daddy on that one my son tanner called me up last week and he said daddy can you come down here to chicagoland and can we just go out and eat together i said i'd be happy to do that son And so I spent a big portion of my day driving to Naperville, Illinois, and just hanging out with my son and laughing and complimenting him and just being a father to him, having a relationship with him. Isn't that beautiful when you can do that with your kids? Friends, there are people that can't even talk to their kids. Their kids won't have anything to do with them. And I want you to know something. If I would have sacrificed my kids on the altar for ministry, I might have been in that same boat. But what was I doing? I was listening to the Holy Spirit. And when he said something that didn't seem convenient, didn't seem right. But yet my wife and I were in agreement. We were hearing the same thing. She heard it first, of course, like most women. But I'm dealing with emotions. Remember, I'm dealing with feelings. And it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. But Holy Spirit, I'm willing to follow your lead if this is what you really have for me. I was more than just in the right place at the right time when the gospel of grace began to get introduced into my religious life friends you see for years i was trying to fertilize my own pasture and i was trying to dig my own well and people are trying to do that today they're trying to fertilize their little christian lives by do's and don'ts. fertilizer 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 let's make it grow better come on friends you're going to need miracle growth that ain't going to work and the miracle is the miracle of grace trying to fertilize your little Christian life. It wasn't working. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. This was many years ago. And He said, Son, let's go on a journey. A journey that will lead you in the paths of righteousness. A journey that will lead you straight to my daddy's heart. A journey that will introduce you to the revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What was the Father doing? (laughs) Well, it's the same answer. He was orchestrating. He was orchestrating the perfect intersection of grace and truth. And I would ultimately come to that intersection and I would have to look both ways. And when I saw grace one way and truth another way, My heart was drawn to what Jesus said. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I realized, you know, this whole ministry thing, this whole Christian walk is about Christ. It's about the darling of heaven, Christ. Friends, you're chasing your tail if you're going after anything but Jesus' heart. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about daddy. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about enjoying yourself, laying down in green pastures, taking a nap when the sheep nap too. Come on. We can be at so much rest that we can just nap anywhere. Of course, most of us men are like that anyway, right? Come on, we can nap anywhere, can't we? In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we see an example of a perfect encounter through the narrative of the woman at the well. Very classic story. Very classic Bible story. I love this story. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, the characters that emerge from these opening verses are Jesus, the disciples, new converts, they're the ones getting baptized, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees. Let me ask you a question. Who are the troublemakers that you can see in these scriptures here? Well, it's not Jesus. Jesus might have stirred up trouble, but he didn't make any. It's not his disciples. It's not even John the Baptist. They're all trying to promote Christ. Not even their own agenda. It's not these new converts. They're just buzzing. They're just so happy. The troublemakers are the Pharisees, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, come on. Come on, Marty. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the only ones who did not have their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. It's the same troublemakers of today. It is those who do not have their eyes on Christ and those who don't get their way. These are the troublemakers then, and these are the troublemakers now. Those who don't fix their eyes on Christ and those who don't get their own way. Even the book of James says, what causes trouble? fighting and quarreling among you. It says you want something, but you don't get it. Friends, if my life ended right now, I'm as satisfied as I will ever be. There's nothing I'm chasing, nothing I want. I have Jesus. He's given me a beautiful wife, Valerie. He's given me a lovely family. He's given me the privilege, the honor to minister this gospel of grace and watch lives get changed. What else more could I desire? I know him personally. He talks to me. I hear him. I sing to him. He sings to me. We dance together. What more could I ask for? The problem with the Pharisees is that they were singing the wrong lyrics. They should have been singing, there is none like you, but instead they were singing, there is none like us. Ouch. That stings, doesn't it? That was their song! There's none like us looking down their noses at people. Don't ever do that, man. There's nobody that's walking the face of the earth that Jesus didn't die for. Remember that, okay? The Pharisees spent too much time rubbing their rabbit's foot counting their lucky stars, cracking open fortune cookies, and sucking on the lemon wedge of the old covenant. They had zero love for common people, religious to the max and intolerant in all their ways. Friends, of the Pharisees, yes, they are the religious leaders. They were the nucleus of social distancing and cancel culture. Wow. <laughs> Holy Spirit said that to me late last night. He said, you know what? This is not a new thing that you guys are doing today, this social distancing thing and this cancel culture. The Pharisees were doing it back then too. You see, they wanted to social distance themselves from Jesus because he was stealing their thunder. And they wanted to cancel culture, Jesus. Cancel his ministry. Cancel his life. There were times that they would walk Jesus to the edge of a cliff in attempt to want to throw him off but yet he would walk through. The Bible says he would walk through the crowd. You know why he walked through the crowd? And why they couldn't throw him off the cliff? Because it was not prophesied. It was not destined for him to die by going off a cliff. It was destined for him to die on an old rugged cross. So this is what they're trying to do, right? The Pharisees saw Jesus as competition and they sought opportunity all the time to exterminate him. Heaven's spotlight was on Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, and the Pharisees didn't like it. They wanted their names on the marquee, not Jesus's. But while the Pharisees were offering the lemon wedge of the Old Covenant, Jesus came along and offered living water of the New Covenant. Now you pick between the two, lemon wedge, living water. And the Pharisees hated Jesus for that reason alone. How could you offer such a thing, such a freedom to people that don't deserve it? That's what grace looks like, friends. Friends, Jesus came to lead us into a perfect encounter with his father. Jesus came to say, taste and see my daddy is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him jesus came to strip away rabbit feet fortune cookies and lucky stars jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly we don't have to be superstitious he's up close and personal jesus came to lead us into green pastures and give us an eternal drink of living water jesus came to write the lyrics on our heart the lyrics that declare there is none like you no one else can touch my heart like you do I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you, he wanted to write that on our hearts, and that's what the covenant the new covenant does. it writes these lyrics on our heart. there's none like him. No one can touch my heart, nobody can do the thing the things to me that I feel that Jesus can do to me that this gospel of grace, this gospel of his finished work can do to me. Look at the scriptures again, John 4, 1-3. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Next scriptures. Now he had to go through Samaria. I love that. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukar, that's how it's pronounced, Sukar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus is on a journey to Galilee. If you understand the regions over there, you've got Judah in the lower region where Jerusalem and things are at. Above Judah you have Samaria, and then above that you have Galilee. So it makes sense if you're going to go to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. And so when it opens up the scripture by saying now we had to go through Samaria, it kind of makes sense that you have to go through there to get there. But why does it give us that detail? Now the truth of the matter is Jesus could have walked around Samaria. You could walk off around to the east like the Pharisees did. They hated the Samaritans and they didn't want to even come into contact with them. So they would walk 20, 30 miles out of their way to go completely around them and then come up into northern Galilee. Why does it give us that detail? Did Jesus really have to go through Samaria to get there? No, he didn't have to go through there, geographically speaking. He could have walked around Samaria after all. Like I said, the Pharisees did that. So why did he do that? Because I believe he had a conversation with his father. And his father was orchestrating. Not play-by-play, didn't give him every single move. And I wouldn't want that either. I don't want play-by-play. First of all, it's way too much to remember. Number two, I love to just enjoy the journey. Leaves room for surprise and elements of just enjoyable things. The father was orchestrating Jesus there. He was orchestrating the perfect encounter with an unnamed woman at Jacob's well a woman that had a checkered past and a marred reputation but she will be changed in an instant through a drink of living water we see the humanity side of Jesus as he sat down at the well the bible says he's tired that's the human side of Christ he's thirsty he's human he's not just God he's a man in heaven he's still a man He has a body. So we see the humanity side of Jesus. He's tired and thirsty from the journey, and he sits down to take a real rest. I find it interesting that the time stamp on the day is the sixth hour. The day started at 6 o'clock in the morning, so it tells you very clearly, it's speaking of high noon. It is high noon. Now, when you read your Bible, you don't find many occasions where it talks about the women coming out to draw water but where you do find it is in Genesis 24. I don't have the scripture here, but where you do find it in Genesis 24. And the Bible says that they would come out and draw water in the evening. And it kind of makes sense, so that in the morning you don't have a whole bunch of chores. I mean, people are getting ready. Kids are going to school. Husband's getting up. You've got to cook breakfast. Well, you know, I've got to go spend two hours going out till well, you know, that's a half a mile away and carrying this all back. No, it makes sense. I guess it makes sense. So she is getting water at noon in the heat of the day, when the sun is baking down on you. The other women are going out to draw water in the evening. Yet the Samaritan woman from this narrative is coming maybe five or six hours early. And let's see if we can uncover what's going on. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15 now. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Any one of us would be crazy to say no. We, if Jesus came to our house and he said, can I have a drink? You'd say, yes, sit down. Uh, you know, you'd be taking selfies with him. You'd be saying, can I cook you something? Jesus is just asking for a drink, that's it. He said, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Do you see the polarization? Do you see the social distancing? Do you see the cancel culture? It was going on then too. She said, I can tell by looking at you, by your robe. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk to each other. We don't even look each other in the eyes, and you're asking me for a drink? She says, How can you ask me for a drink? She says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We don't say hi to each other, we don't touch the same utensils. They had more disdain for each other than Democrats have for Republicans, friends, and vice versa, maybe. Jesus answered her, look at this. See, he's not dissuaded by what she said. Why? Because he's being orchestrated by daddy. He's on an assignment by papa. Jesus answered her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, look at these words, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. living water what in the world is that sir the woman said you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where can you get this living water friends everyone has a well on the inside of them valerie spoke about it last week some are deep and some are shallow Some wells have gone dry. Other wells contain contaminated water. But everybody's got a well on the inside of them. Jesus reconciled us all at the cross. That's why Jesus is offering the Samaritan woman a drink of his water. What is different about Jesus' water? It's living water. It comes as a gift. And Jesus' water quenches the thirst of our spirit with one drink isn't that what he told her he said you'll never thirst again if you take my drink of water you see friends the perfect encounter at the well was not about jesus having a drink the perfect encounter at the well was a divinely orchestrated display of love and grace It's almost like she went like, okay, yeah, I heard all that stuff that you said there. But then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She just points him right back to religion. Her default is all she knows. This is Jacob's well, and you're trying to say you're greater than him. He lived thousands of years ago. Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock. There's something special about this place. It's like a shrine. Jacob actually drank out of this. And we make these things into a shrine. All these physical objects, all of these do's and don'ts. And that's what she's doing here, in a sense. She's saying, This well is special. It was Jacob's well. He gave it to Joseph, and their cattle drank from it, and they drank from it. Can you see how easy that is to do to slip over into something like that? Jesus answered, Let's recap what we've just seen in this vignette. The Samaritan woman is coming to draw water. It is noon, a time when people did not come to draw water. She is doing so because she is an outcast. She has been rejected by the townspeople because of her lifestyle. She has a reputation. She has a red light on her front porch. She has been socially distanced, and the other ladies have cancel-cultured her. But Jesus had other plans. Remember, He's been divinely orchestrated by his father to be her perfect encounter. Jesus is going to deal with Jacob's well by offering her a drink of living water. Her well was Jacob's well, an external well, a religious well. Jesus is telling her that he's going to put the well on the inside of her. Do you see the difference? External well, internal well. I'm going to put the well inside of you. Living water goes in you. It's not down in this hole. It goes in you. But first, Jesus has to skillfully deal with the baggage that she's carrying, the baggage of shame and condemnation. He's going to deal with that. Let's look at the next verses. Verses 16 through 24. He told her, Go and call your husband, and come back. I think that's just a fascinating scripture. They're talking about water, exchanging water, and I'm going to put the well on the inside of you. This is Jacob's well, and Jesus says, I want you to go call your husband. It just doesn't seem to fit, does it? I mean, it just seems like Jesus pulled it into a different gear. It doesn't seem like it's in context. It doesn't seem like it's germane to the conversation that they've been having. But Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, (laughs) you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Let me ask the question I asked a little while ago. What was the father doing? What was Jesus doing in this situation? He was letting the Samaritan woman know that he's the God who sees. He sees her baggage. He sees her failures. He sees her shame. He sees her disappointment. He sees her tears. He sees her brokenness. He sees her fortune cookies, rabbit feet, lucky stars, and lemon wedges. He sees her heartache. He sees her excuses. He sees that she's a Samaritan woman. He sees in the spirit realm her five husbands. And he sees the man that she is shacking up with at the moment. Yet he loves her and accepts her just the way she is. Do you see that, people? How great is our God? He knows all this about me? And you still want to give me a drink of living water? Are you kidding me? She responds with these words. Next scriptures. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. As my mama used to always say, she would say, Son, wherever you kneel is your altar. You don't have to be in a certain place. Wherever you kneel, and even if I can't even get down on my knees, friends, I can kneel my heart before the Lord. Wherever I kneel is my altar. I don't have to go to Jerusalem. I don't have to go to this mountain. I don't have to go to Jacob's well. Jesus said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, look what he says, and has now come. Friends, quit pushing things out into the future. A time is coming, Jesus said, and has now come. I'm the fulfillment of living water here i am it has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks and then he says god is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth next scriptures The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he gets here, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, in case I didn't make it clear with I, I'm talking about the one talking to you. So it's just you and it's just me. I, the one talking to you, I am he. I love that. He reveals himself. He reveals the living water at that moment. I'm the one you've been looking for. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They've just got religious brains, man. Talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? I love these next scriptures. Look at them. Look what happened. Then leaving her water jar. Please underscore those words in your heart this morning. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, 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 come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Friends, do you notice the level of excitement In this woman, after she received the revelation that she could worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see her behavioral change after she drew water from the wells of salvation? Remember those words. After she drew water from the wells of salvation coming up out of Christ. Did you see how her actions proved that she was no longer dependent upon Jacob's well. You see, that day, friends, Jesus put the well on the inside of her. What was her response? She abandoned her water jar and ran with enthusiasm back to town. Her message to even the people that wouldn't associate with her was this, come and see. I don't have anything against you anymore. He doesn't have anything against you anymore. Come, come, come and see a man Who told me everything I've ever done, yet he still loves me? Come see this man. It's registering in my soul. It's, It's gotten down on the inside of me. The best way I can explain it, it feels like a well on the inside of me that's gushing on the inside of me. I can't contain myself. She said, Could this be the Messiah? The Gospel of John is beautiful. We see water everywhere from jesus's first miracle when he turned water into wine he's always changing things friends when he took jacob's well and he said no i'm going to turn this into living water and put it on the inside of you better we're in chapter four that's it of the book of john i don't have the scriptures with me this morning But I do know in John chapter 7, Jesus has made his way into the Feast of Tabernacles. And after the feast had run its course, Jesus began to look out across people that were parched lands. And he couldn't stand it anymore. And the Bible says, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you hear him talking about the Spirit is going to bring this overloading supply of living water? You don't have to keep running back to Jacob's well. You don't have to keep running back to Moses' law. You don't have to run back to these things. I'm going to put a well on the inside of you that is so great so powerful friends these living waters don't only flow from jesus's belly they flow from our belly. i noticed that once i received the holy spirit i used to tell people he's right here i can't speak for you i can only speak for me but when he gets on me oh, he starts manifesting it's here I don't feel him in that little bitty finger. I don't think I've ever felt him there. But I feel him here. He's very active. And I thought sometimes I almost feel pregnant like a baby's kicking around on the inside of me. It's the Holy Spirit kicking around on the inside of me. It feels good. You know what it is? It's living waters on the inside of me, rushing and bubbling out of me. Living waters of salvation. My last scripture, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Look at that. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Look what he says there. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. That's what Jesus was doing. That was his assignment that day when the father spoke to him and said, Son, you got to go through Samaria. I know they're going to mistreat you there, son. They're going to shun you. They're going to treat you like they got the black plague. Son, I know this happens. I have see it all the time. But son, I'm going to show you a woman that's going to come to Jacob's well And as you sit there quietly because you're tired from the journey and you're thirsty, she will come walking down a path. Little does she know, but she is about to run into the perfect encounter. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The Father has dug a well on the inside of every man. Every man has been reconciled through the cross. Daddy's deepest desire is to fill every well with living water. Therefore, he compels us to come, come to the waters. Taste of the living waters and see that the Lord is good. His goodness cannot be explained. His goodness must be experienced. It's a goodness that satisfies. It's a goodness that pacifies our souls. A goodness that causes us to leave our religious water jar behind. There is no encounter like Jesus. There are no substitutes for his grace. Our anthem is written across every marquee. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity long and find. There is none like you. Friends, as much as the woman at the well abandoned her water jar, likewise, we abandon the lemon wedge of the old covenant. We abandon everything that sets our teeth on edge and sours our disposition. We abandon everything that attempts to alter the taste buds toward the new covenant of grace. Friends, God is the God Of orchestration. He does not control us. He does not manipulate us. He gently leads us into green pastures and into rivers of living water. He knows everything about us. He has seen our failures. He has seen our heartaches. He has seen our disappointments. He has seen our own betrayals. And yet he loves us unconditionally. Unconditionally. He loves us because we are his. He loved us enough to shed his precious blood for us while we were yet sinners. We do not become the father's child through chance or luck. We become daddy's child through the perfect encounter with Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, daddy, I want to praise you and I want to thank you as I look back across the landscape, the timeline of what you've said through this series of messages. I am in awe that you can make it so plain that you can take the scriptures and you can pull back the curtain, you can pull back the veil, and you can say, Sir, Ma'am, it's always been about my living waters. I want to thank you, Father, that you do not condemn us. We see that in the narrative of the woman at the well. Here's a woman that is an outcast. Here's a woman that's not accepted by another person other than the man she's shacking up with. Yet you accept her just the way she is. You don't tell her to go home and leave her husband. You tell her to go get him. Why? Because you want him to drink of the living water too. This is the goodness of God. And so thank you, Father, that we drift back in this message and we hear the words of David when he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is God. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. In Jesus' name, amen.